APU. American Public University is proud to present The Everyday Scholar. Hello, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking to Dr. Wally Boston, President Emeritus at American Public University System. And our conversation today is about graduation rates. And uh, welcome, Wally. Thank you, Bjorn. Good to be here. Excellent. And I'm excited about this conversation. Graduation rates in higher education are kind of a, a metric <laughs> that is used to compare. And so in a recent article you penned, when graduation rates are all about the numbers, are they really? You discuss graduation rates in higher education. And so my first question is, how and why are graduation rates just one metric of many of a college's success? The good news is that many people recognize there are different things to recognize other than uh, graduation rate. So, for example, um, completion of courses, pass-fail rate, retention, or the persistence of someone from a course to course. At the same time, I think most people look at graduation rates as a measurement of how successful the institution is instead of a measurement of how many students who are admitted to the institution actually graduate. When it gets pretty complex is when you say, okay, this institution doesn't have a, let's just pick the perfect number, 100% graduation rate. Why is its graduation rate 50%, 25%, 75%, 95%, you know, why isn't it 100%? That's when it gets complicated. And I'm glad you said complicated because graduation rates are complicated because you have more elite institutions where their graduation rate will be around like 92%, 94%. And then you have other institutions where they'll be anywhere from honestly 10% up to the 90s. Here's a question which I think oftentimes happens, but should we look to, quote, elite schools as aspirational when it comes to higher education and graduation rates? Absolutely not. And the reason for that is, so there are different definitions of elite schools. If you go to the most elite, it's what they call the Ivy Plus. So it's the eight institutions that form the Ivy League, which is really an athletic league, plus uh, Northwestern, Duke, Stanford, University of Chicago, and I'm probably leaving one other institution out. The Ivy Plus institutions, all 13 of them, have graduation rates from 94% up to high 90s. No one has a 100% graduation rate. After all, Bill Gates didn't graduate from Harvard, neither did Mark Zuckerberg. But the fact of the matter is that the reason those institutions' graduation rates are so high is they are the most selective in terms of admissions. So when you're highly selective, taking someone whose high school GPA was, if it wasn't 4.0, it was really close to it. Their SAT scores, if they weren't 1,600, they were pretty close to it. The irony is they turned down a lot of people with 4.0s and perfect SAT scores. So they're not totally looking for that, but they're looking for the superstars of everything. And generally with a pool like that, the success of the student in high school as well as the success of their intellectual background based on testing scores is a, an extremely good predictor of their ultimate success. And then when you weigh into their background, such as did both of their parents go to college? Well, if they're in, at an Ivy Plus institution, I'd say the odds are probably at least 75 to 
85% that both of their parents went to college, maybe even higher than that. So all of those predictors lead to someone having the background as well as the intellectual capacity and sort of a roadmap from both parents and associates to succeed in college. And when you get below the Ivy Plus, there are only 100 institutions out of 5,000 that accept less than 50% of the students who apply. So the next 85 out of the top 100 that accept less, you know, they're, they're going to have a decent rate too. I'm, I'm going to guess that their rate's going to be above 80, but less than the Ivy Plus. But after that, graduation rates go down in proportion to the selectivity of the institution. And I'm really glad you brought up selectivity because if you have very strict criteria on the people you let in, say you go to, uh, like you said, one of the one of the Ivies, you know, the traditionals like Dartmouth. And so those students that go to those schools are, again, are, are great and they're brilliant, but it's also not what I would say typical of your student population. And so those schools service a need 100%. What is a good median or average school that has a good graduation rate with really good learning outcomes that could be used as a good example versus when you're reading examples and you're watching, say, news, the experts are always from Harvard. They're always talking about all of those elite schools. In answer to your question, Bjorn, I'm thinking off the top of my head, William & Mary is a state institution in Virginia. It's the second oldest institution in America after Harvard. I believe that in the most recent year, William & Mary actually was one of those top 100 schools that admitted 42% of their applicants and 25% of the ones who were admitted enrolled. So there were a lot of students who were applying to institutions other than William & Mary. Nonetheless, the College Navigator tells me that William & Mary has a 91% graduation rate. It's not a single digit acceptance rate like the Ivy Plus schools are. They are admitting 42%. But I think whereas certainly William & Mary is doing a good job, I look at the test scores of the students who go there. And it appears that uh, the SATs for the 25th percentile of William & Mary are 1,300, and for the 75th percentile are 1,490. So you still have high achieving academic background of the individuals who are being admitted and who who are matriculating William & Mary. I could think of Texas A&M, but Texas A&M has 68,000 students. So my guess is that while they admit a higher percent of their students, they probably have a lower graduation rate because with 68,000 students, they're bound to have some people transfer. So if I look at Texas A&M's overall graduation rates, 83%. So that part of it's not too bad. Remember, they have 68,000 students. And if you look at their admissions stats, Texas A&M admits 63%. So that's that's not bad. They're admitting 63% of their SATs. The 25th percentile is lower than William & Mary's. It's 1160 instead of 1200. And the 75th percentile is not bad either. It's 1380. So William & Mary's was was closer to 1500. But so a slightly lower profile of academic background as far as SAT scores go, and a much higher percentage uh, of of students who are admitted, 63%. 
but a pretty decent graduation rate, 83%. One of the examples that I like to use is University of Kansas. And so, you know, large state institution, and its acceptance rate is about 93%, which is basically letting everyone in, <laughs> which is quite amazing. And then its graduation rate is 62%, which again, compared to William & Mary and the Ivies is a much lower, lower graduation rate. But the fact that they're letting in pretty much everybody and they're graduating around 62, 63% of their students is quite a wonderful achievement. And so this leads me to the next question. Why do schools such as University of Texas, El Paso, and uh, Jackson State get, quote, negative press for their graduation rates because their graduation rates are basically in the teens. Well, as you may know, m much of my academic research for my dissertation was around student retention. And for years, we've known that the percentage of students at an institution are not in that traditional 18 to 24-year-old bracket and are not residential. The risk of those students not persisting gets higher and higher. So commuter schools, which can be community colleges or they can be four-year schools, commuter schools have one of the highest risk of people not matriculating or not graduating. And there are you know, several different reasons. But first of all, if you're living at home, you have distractions. Secondly, if you're living at home, money may be an issue for you and you may be working close to full time to help support not just yourself, but your family. And so you may have issues that surface with either your family situation or your job or both. If you're commuting, you can't get a class to match up with your work schedule and take the class to be convenient. So you're either reducing your load, you're no longer a full-time student, which reduces your financial aid. If you go below half-time student, you don't get any financial aid at all. One of the things that is also known is, is that students who reduce their course load from a full-time load to something less than full-time are also more at risk of dropping out or transferring. So those are just the quick reasons. But then in the two specific examples that you gave, both El Paso and Jackson State, the state of Mississippi is the 49th wealthiest state or said it's the second poorest state in the country and its family income is very, very low. So the lower the family income, the higher the risk that an individual won't even enroll in college, but then those individuals who do enroll in college have a higher risk of dropping out. El Paso, while, while Texas is not the second poorest state, El Paso is one of the poorest areas of Texas. And so if you have a commuter school with residents primarily from El Paso, I would hazard a guess to say that probably the uh, socioeconomic income in El Paso is probably not much different than the socioeconomic income in Mississippi. Another reason why the graduation rate's lowest. From a state that I lived in until about a year or so ago, Maryland, the lowest graduation rate for a state school is Coppin State, which is 6%. What just so happens that Coppin State, it's a historically black, historically black college and university. It is in the city of Baltimore, and it is in one of the worst neighborhoods of Baltimore. So 6% is the graduation rate. Surprise is that high, actually. All of the students commute. They might have one dorm. It's just not a safe neighborhood for anybody to be in. All the reasons that I've already cited, plus lots of risk being a commuting student in that neighborhood. And 
some of the lowest academic credentials of a matriculating student are probably at Coppin State compared to the other state institutions. And you just brought up so many good, good, good factors that go into graduation rates. And so I guess the question is, for elite schools, their graduation rate is going to be great. Academically, the schools are wonderful. They provide support. The faculty are amazing. The administration, <laughs> you know, works tirelessly. And then for other schools, again, the faculty are great faculty at UTEP, at Coppin State, at Jackson State. The faculty work hard. But then the socioeconomic status of the students is, of course, not as high. And so that of course, complicates things. And it makes makes everything more complicated, even in the sense that students sometimes struggle paying for books. And if they can't pay for books, that might be the roadblock that disenrolls them. For schools that have more commuter students, a lower SES, what can they do to help students? Should schools be uh, rated on a graduation rate of like eight years instead of say four to six? Should there be other degree options versus just, say, a bachelor's degree? You know, what are different ways in which colleges and universities can serve as students versus the traditional ways that have been around for decades? Yeah, great question. So the Department of Education is now tracking graduation rates for institutions at four, six, and eight years, essentially double what the traditional time period is. So if you're a community college, it'll be two, four, and six, and it's four, six, and eight for four-year school. Now, interestingly, there are some schools, American Public University System, where I was president, is one of them, that because of their open enrollment status, allow students 10 years to graduate. And there are plenty of students over the years at APUS who've taken 10 years to graduate. And I always said that we give them 10 years, whether they started as a true freshman or they transferred in credits from another institution. And many times when I look at the average credits that are transferred in and apply a, a how many courses a year they, they take with us, some of the people who are taking close to 10 years with us may have taken seven years somewhere else before they transferred in the courses. So part-time students, I applaud them just to get there. So when you look at what schools can do, I think the schools really need to try to provide the communication and the ability for their students to get counseling of all types, not just academic counseling in the sense that how can I succeed in this course, but academic counseling, how, how can I choose the right major that allows me to graduate earlier rather than later? Because if we change our minds, sometimes we have to take different courses and it's going to take us a while. I mean, my brother, when he and I were in college, we're only a year apart. He decided that he wanted to be a business major. He, I think he started out as a psychology major or something. He wanted to be a business major. Well, it just so happened that the branch of the University of Maryland he went to did not have a business degree. So he had to transfer. So when he transferred, even though he was still in the University of Maryland system, because he had to take some courses for business that he had not taken he had completed two years at this other branch of the University of Maryland. It ended up taking him five years to graduate. And that's crazy part. It might have taken him longer if he really hadn't fought for every one of the credits that he had to fight for. In the state of Texas, where I now reside, the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board tracks the what they call the excess credits that uh, students have to take. And when they started tracking this back in 
2015, I think the average statewide for excess credits was about 16. And they set a, a goal by 2030. They want it to not be more than three credit hours, one course extra. And they're actually reducing that number. Uh, they, they've already gotten it down from about 16 to, uh, I think the last number I saw was under 10. In order to do that, you really have to counsel people appropriately, and you have to make sure that people select the major that's best for them up front, and they understand the consequences of switching. And then if they don't, and they do need to switch, switch them earlier rather than later. Don't let somebody get all the way to junior year and they decide they're in the wrong major. That's that's just not good. So that type of counseling is important. Counseling per course, so they don't flunk a course. The killer courses at some schools, particularly the schools that are open enrollment, are typically your fundamental English course and your fundamental math course, college math and college English. And if you can't pass those courses, and in the cases of some schools, you can't even get into the courses because they've deemed, based on your high school, that you need to have developmental math and developmental English. You've got to find a way to get those students through those classes because statistically, if a student can't get through developmental math or remedial math, or can't get through developmental English or remedial English, they're not going to get through English 101 or Math 101. It's just not going to happen. And those are fundamental required courses in just about every college university in the United States. you got to demonstrate that you can do those two subjects. And I'd say it's reasonable that you do those two. So you don't have to do calculus, except at the elite schools. But uh, if you're going to get a job somewhere, you have to do basic algebra. And that's what really the basic college math courses are all about. And you also have to be able to read and write appropriately so people know you're able to process the materials that come across your desk each day or the emails or communicate with a customer. That's what those courses are all designed for. So sadly, our high schools aren't necessarily doing a good job of that. Once again, I go to a state like Texas that's very data-driven and very aligned in looking at the money that they're spending in their educational system. So if you go to the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board and, and look at this 60 times 30 TX, which is their strat plan, which is to have uh, 60% of their high school graduates to have some form of college certification, either you know graduated with a certificate, a two-year degree or a four-year degree by 2030. They're tracking every single high school in the state. They're tracking how well those high schools are doing and placing people into college. As we just cited with the example of El Paso, the poor areas have a much lower rate of students who go to college. Well, guess what? They're giving those areas resources. And I don't think they're doing it from a shaming perspective, but it's like, let's be transparent. So when the legislature meets again, we need to find ways to funnel our budget because, you know, the state knows it will not continue to be a draw for businesses to relocate to the state if they can't show and demonstrate that people who live in that state can benefit from an education system that prepares them for jobs of the future. It's not all about the college in some cases. It's it's about the feeder schools that feed into those schools if it's a school that draws primarily, if it's a college that draws primarily from the local area. A lot of really good information there. And one of the things that I really liked what you said was about the excess credits. So I know when I went through college, I had about, I think, 16 excess credits that for an undergraduate were essentially wasted. 
And I could have uh, not graduated early because I did graduate in four years, but I could have like not had to have taken those if I would have planned better or, you know, better policies. And I didn't even change my major. And I really like what you said about counseling, because if students have good counseling and if they try to figure out a major at least earlier, then they can get through as long as they are really focused. And if they have the resolution, of course, there's always been talk about grit and whatnot. I know for like my own doctorate, it took me 10 years plus to finish my doctorate. And for a lot of people, there's a many, many times in their college career where they could easily give up. And from my own experience in my doctorate, I could have easily given up and just been like, look, I'm done. <laughs> and then gone off and done something and had a good life, et cetera, et cetera. But in my own life, all of the opportunities that I've really had have come about and have been facilitated because I've had a doctorate. So I'm so thankful that I did have that resolution you know, to really finish the doctorate. But for many people, something could have happened, a life event could have happened, a financial issue could have happened, and they could have easily stopped. And it's totally understandable. And that's why graduation rates are so extraordinarily difficult. And with Texas, I'm really glad you brought that up. I grew up in El Paso, I graduated high school in El Paso. I don't think I'm wrong saying it's a land poor city because it's in the middle of the desert. <laughs> It's really far from the major areas of Austin and Houston. It's literally on the, on the other side of the state. And so El Paso does an absolutely wonderful job, but it unfortunately is a, quote, poorer area. And so they do everything they can. And like you said, I, there's absolutely no shame into allocating more resources, wise resources to help schools that are, quote, struggling with graduation or college placement. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Wally Boston. And we'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe higher education is not one size fits all. That's why we offer 200 modern programs that build on your knowledge and fit your schedule. Because we believe universities should adapt to the needs of students, not the other way around. American Public University, within reach, without limits. Online classes start every month. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back with Dr. Wally Boston. And this leads us to the next question is, how should colleges and universities be rated and judged? You know, that's, that's a great question. When I look at the literature on how to measure student success, there is a scholar by the last name of Aston who said that persistence is when a student succeeds in accomplishing their personal goal. So believe it or not, it may or may not be that a student's goal is to graduate from an institution. It could be that a student's goal is to take a couple of courses and get a promotion at their job. And those courses may not even lead to a bona fide certificate. They just They found out that they could take a marketing course, and if they take the marketing course, they can get a promotion from counter clerk to a salesperson. So you really have to both look at the institution and then ask the institution to provide that measurement. So, for example, when we look at graduation rates at American Public University System, we, over the years, decided that we had so many students who are taking courses for transfer that we do not want to put a student who's taking courses for transfer in the denominator of our calculated graduation rate. So some years ago, I think it was around 2010, we, we were working with the CCME, which is the Council of College Military Educators, to try to come up with what should be
be the calculated graduation rate for students who are active duty military. By that point, we'd been working with a definition of what we called a classic student. And the tweak in our definition and the, and the difference between the definition at uh, University of Maryland, University College, which is now University of Maryland Global Campus, and the two of us were the largest in terms of enrollment of active duty military. We came up, I think we were at four courses and they were five. So we, we simply came up with five because it represents one semester. So if a student has completed one semester's worth of courses with us, as well as transferred in at least three courses or nine credit hours. We consider that a, a classic student. That's in the denominator for what we measure. Now, we, we have to provide much more broader data to the Department of Education for their calculator. But the fact of the matter is that if you've served in the military, which that number that represents more than 70% of our students, you are going to get academic credit for some of your training. And so our students who serve in the military, the last time I looked at the average, actually transfer about 28 credit hours. And some of that credit hour comes from training and some of the credit hour comes from attending other schools. Some of those courses are courses they take for transfer to those are the schools. So the, those other schools shouldn't be penalized for the courses that someone takes to transfer to us or vice versa. But the reason I'm going on this long-winded calculation, it, it took us a number of years to determine how appropriately to measure ourselves in terms of what our graduation rate was. And, and the good news is that accrediting bodies allow schools to explain why they look at a graduation rate differently. And as long as you clearly articulate that graduation rate, you're not misleading the public at all. In fact, if you go to our website, we list 100% of the students who actually complete a course. As long as you start a course and complete it, we're going to show you because that's what the Department of Education wants. And then we, we go down from there, okay, they complete a course, they're full-time, they're, they're part-time, whatever, until we can get to the denominator for what we use for our calculation, which is complete 15 credit hours, which is one semester, transfer in nine credit hours. And that's, that's a classic student. A friend of mine who's been president of Community College of Baltimore County for about 20 years surprised me one day when I said, now... How do you look at graduation rate? I said, you have 60,000 students. That's quite a few. And she goes, well, we have 60,000 students, but only have 12,000 of them who are pursuing a two-year degree. Really? <laughs> she said, yes. She goes, so every year we, we have somewhere between 2,200 and 2,400 that graduate. And I said, oh, so 22 or 2,400 on 12,000, not 2,200 or 2,400 on 60,000. She goes, yeah. She goes, the 60,000. Most of them are not seeking a degree at all. I think most institutions have a very good idea how to measure this and how they, and what the accrediting bodies look at is, are you succeeding or are you failing? Are you improving when you set your measurement for measuring graduation rate or are you not improving? And how do you explain it and what are your reasons why? I think that sadly though, it, it does get a little complicated. I mean, we have to have a table on our webpage. It does fit on one page. We have a table, though, and we try to explain how we go from the calculation that the U.S. government requires us to submit to the Department of Education to our calculation. It's all there, and all the, all the numbers tie. That's what accountants like, making sure the numbers tie to each other. But there definitely are explanations. I mean, for example, one of the recently termed explanations for student retention is student swirling, and that deals with the students who are taking courses for transfer. So, one of the things that I often ask our data people at APUS to look at 
is the number of students who are stating that they're seeking a degree, but they've not sent us a transcript. Because we happen to know that well over 90% of our graduates transfer in some credits because we are transfer friendly. If you've earned a credit somewhere, we encourage you to submit the credit. We really don't, back to that conversation in the state of Texas, we really don't want you taking excess courses. We want to try to help you to get through as soon as possible. So because we know that such a high percentage of graduates have transfer credits, if a student has said they're degree seeking, but they don't send us any transfer credits, I've told people we need to be very suspicious that that student's not a serious student. And we, we go out of our way to try to encourage people to uh, submit the transcripts to us. In fact, we don't charge them for the evaluation, nor do we charge them for getting it. So if you sign us an authorization form and you know that you earned some credits at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, we will mail in the request and we will pay UMBC whatever it is, we'll we'll pay that fee. So you you don't have to do it. We'll take care of it. We'll pay the fee. We'll get it in there and we'll we'll get it logged in as a transfer. So back to the student swirling. There are many definitions of student swirling, but essentially one of them is that a student may attend two or three institutions, but only one of the institutions they're attending is their home institution. And so the home institution is where all the credits are logged in, where all the transfer credits are coming into and so if, if you happen to not have a student who's taken the time to transfer their credits to you, then you're probably not their home institution. And that's an issue because there are a lot of students who go from school to school. You know, I've seen some, some transcripts where they've gone to like five different schools and then they're at our institution and we're the sixth. And you hope amongst everything that they will be successful, of course. And that's one of the things I think our conversation about graduates really gets complicated because it comes down to each individual student. And when we think about all the institutions out there with thousands of students who service students who are rich to poor to everything in between and are just trying to improve their lives, it's all about where they are in their life and if they can achieve that goal. Everything you said about counseling and all this is so important. It really makes me think about the purpose of education which is transformational. It's supposed to start at the beginning as a young student or maybe as an older student. The traditional student is, I believe, the minority these days because everybody can go back and get a college degree, which is good. And so, you know, what is the purpose of education? And it's transformation, especially today when I think of 2025 and I think of 2030 and 2040, so much of it is focused on technology and we all have to be able to write and really scaling up so you can be successful for the rest of your career, whatever that looks like. And it's been an absolutely wonderful conversation about graduation rates. Now, as a, as a side question, do you have any suggestions or advice to politicians about how they might talk about graduation rates in a positive way versus, say, a more judgmental way, even in an offhand comment sometimes where maybe they don't intend to say something, but it comes off as potentially negative? Education whether it's K through 12 or higher education, has primarily been regulated by the states in which the bulk of the students attend. So when you look at graduation rates, I think you really need to start at the state level. And I think it's really good that the state of Texas set a goal six years ago to have 60% of their residents achieve some form of 
post-secondary certification, either a certificate, two-year degree, or a four-year degree. And then they went out and said, where are we? They were not at 60%. And Texas is, I think, uh, 36th in terms of having its population achieve a level of education. The state that's ranked number one, and by the way, they're not at 60%, is Massachusetts. Massachusetts is just under 60% for that stat. So the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board took a pretty big, hairy, audacious goal and said, we're going to go for 60% because we'd be number one right now if we had a 60% achievement rate. The United States is an extremely diverse country. The wealth is scattered, but it's not uniformly scattered. So states that have a highly educated workforce, that have a lot of technology, they are doing well. States that don't have a highly educated workforce and have what I call the old industries, you know, car manufacturing, steel manufacturing, and just plain old retail aren't going to do as well as those states that are attracting the newer industries. You really can't look at graduation rates, in my opinion, college graduation rates on a national level. You need to look at it state by state. And I think it's great that a state like Texas that currently ranks 36 has said, you know what, we have a lot of wealth and natural resources here. We have an attractive climate. We actually have an attractive tax structure, but we're going to have to set a goal and get to that goal. Furthermore, in Texas, which Texas is the second largest state in the United States in terms of population, California is number one. They've broken the data down. They get it why El Paso, which has lower income, isn't doing as well as Dallas. Even in Dallas, the performance of the schools differs. I mean, if, if you're in Highland Park, which may be the wealthiest area of Dallas, those schools are performing so much better than the east side of Dallas. But at least it's all out there and you can aggregate it and you know where your population is and, and you know where they're moving to. And so in the case of the politicians for the state of Texas and the governor appoints everyone to the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board. So, but they have staggered terms. So multiple governors, you know, if the changes from Republican to Democrat, it doesn't matter. They, they all get their chance at people expiring on the terms and putting new people on. But the bottom line is you are putting the numbers out there. You recognize that no area inside of your state's exactly alike, but it's everybody's job to get a little better. And so if your goal for the entire state is a 60% achievement rate, starting from post-secondary certificate all the way up to a four-year degree, everybody's got to pitch in. And, and maybe El Paso can never get higher than 38% or 40%. I don't know what their numbers are, but maybe that's the best they can do, just do the circumstances. But if they brought their two points up, then it's two points that perhaps Dallas or some other area doesn't have to pick up. That's how politicians need to look at it. It doesn't mean that our state-funded educational system and colleges and universities have to be equally funded. The idea would be to fund them to their needs so they can bring up the educational level of the population they serve. Exactly. And for Texas to have that aspirational goal of 60% is really good because it really means that they're really trying to improve things. And from a state perspective, if you can move the dial in how your students are achieving, that means that you're that you're more competitive on the national level. And honestly, one of the great things about life today is that if you want to move, there is the potential to move. And so literally you can say, 
if you live in Arizona, example, okay, I'm tired of the summer. Where do I want to live? You can literally start picking and choosing where you want to live based on if it's Texas or Massachusetts or schools, quality of life, et cetera, et cetera. And so people today have a really unique opportunity to start moving different places and they can really start choosing based on what opportunities they want for their kids, uh, different services for themselves. And like you said, the U.S. as a country, I'm going to say, I'm going <laughs> to use a term that is very strong, will never become a socialist state. And in that sense, those create disincentives for many different things. But at the same time, the state institutions, like you said, can help out certain institutions, of course, help out in certain institutions with their outcomes. And by helping out those institutions, they help out everyone. And it really comes down to an individual level. We're trying to help out as many people as possible to be as successful as possible for their entire career and for their life. We could have a completely different uh, podcast about all those other aspects. And so any final words, Wally? I just have one other example. It comes from an article that I recently read in The Economist. So depending on how old you are, some of us may have learned how to read through the system called phonics. Over the last 25 years or so, there's been a competing instructional methodology to teach people how to read, and it's called whole language. So the state of Mississippi, in 2013, the legislature passed a law and said that reading in the state of Mississippi needed to be taught by the best method as indicated by science. And so the state did that, and using the result of a Department of Education study going back to 1997, they switched everybody over to phonics-led instruction. So in a relatively short period of time, the law was passed in 13, and I think they started doing it in 2014. The state of Mississippi has gone from number 49 in terms of reading proficiency to number 26. They're the only state in the United States that has actually improved their reading scores for fourth graders. That's where the benchmark's measured for fourth grade. The most amazing thing is now there's five other states whose legislatures have passed a rule about teaching reading based on science. But my guess is going to be that for Mississippi, because it's too soon for the other states, all those laws have been changed recently. But for Mississippi, if they've improved their fourth graders reading from number 49 in the U.S. to number 26, they're going to have more 12th graders who matriculate into college and more college freshmen who graduate because reading is just so vital to getting an education. And I remember Jim Etter, who founded American Military University, used to say that first you learn to read, and then you read to learn. You're going to be reading to learn more in your life than you're going to be learning to read, hopefully. I think it makes a big difference, and particularly with you know medical advances, so that they say that we're probably going to have a 60-year career because we're going to have a lifetime expectancy of, of 100 years. Reading's so, so important. So this ties into the conversation we've been having. Succeeding in college really works best when you have the best preparation, K through 12. And in my opinion, a lot of it starts with reading. So that'll be my thought for the day. And I absolutely love that. And so really excellent example. And I hope it continues to do well in Mississippi and then spread to other states, including the state I'm in, Arizona. And so today we're speaking with Dr. Wally Boston about graduation rates. Thank you, Bjorn. My pleasure. And my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer. And thank you for listening. 
For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU. American Public University.